0: everyone Dan Cassidy here welcome to top of the morning on the UBS market moves podcast channel for this week's CIO strategy snapshot we will explore what makes the current economic and policy environment here in the U.S. so unique and how as a result investors sentiment might evolve plus offer some insights into the current geopolitical climate and how global financial markets are being impacted uh, joining us for the CIO strategy snapshot glad to welcome back Jason Dreho. The the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jason, great to be with you as always. Welcome back and looking forward to our conversation.
1: Good morning, Dan. It's good to be
0: here to start the week. So, Jason, since we last spoke and we've been covering these ongoing tensions between Russia and the Ukraine for a couple of months now, though those tensions, they have intensified and volatility across global markets has persisted as a result. Though, just looking at the futures here this morning in the U.S., uh, they have come off the worst of it from yesterday, and we are seeing some modest gains in Europe as well. So what's the latest as of this morning, Jason, and how should investors treat flare-ups when it comes to these geopolitical events?
1: Well, so I think at the moment what we're all waiting for is the kind of response from the U.S., from NATO regarding sanctions. Uh, you know, late last night we heard that at a minimum uh, the U.S. government would prohibit companies doing any sort of business in the two uh, regions in, uh, in eastern Ukraine that are now claiming independence and that Russia is recognizing. But there was an expectation that there could be additional measures, uh, some form of sanctions, that would kind of escalate this to, to some degree. Now, I think the, the first step would probably be you know, modest or just only a portion of what the U.S. and its NATO allies would be willing to do. Given that response, I think Russia will then determine like what they actually you know want to send in something more significant than sort of the the peacekeepers that they've claimed uh need to make a more significant incursion to Ukraine. so it's likely to be a bit of sort of tit for tat uh, you know potentially escalating in the coming days or weeks, but I think at the moment that's sort of what we're we're waiting for uh given the escalation uh what we've seen this far. It sort of puts us in between what was our kind of primary base case, which we thought ultimately this would be sort of diplomatic negotiations that would kind of walk back from the edge. Another risk scenario was that there would actually be an incursion into uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, you know, an area called Donbass um, and further into the Russia sphere. Uh, we're sort of in the gray area between those two. Uh, because thus far there actually actually hasn't been any real troops moving into that region, uh, but that is a possibility. What still seems unlikely and a a pretty low risk is, uh, any large-scale military, you know, operations that kind of go beyond that part of, of Ukraine into the rest of Ukraine, just given the economic costs and the political and diplomatic costs become very high for Russia. Uh, but even in our kind of more, you know, one of our risk scenarios of some military incursion, um, Ultimately, it was sort of stopped short of and the sanctions was stopped short of disrupting energy flows and other crucial commodities into into Europe and elsewhere, and ultimately, we think you know the, the kind of the you know geopolitical outrage from the West with a sort moderate of comment and for the markets perhaps even sooner that we'd see it sort of you know, fading a little bit. So if we look at the market action, you know, from yesterday last night until this morning, it is interesting to see how, you know, you know, the futures and P were down around 1.2%, you know, around 8 PM last night. And now they're, uh, they're down, you know, marginally. Uh, if we look at European equities, again, down significantly yesterday, but depending on the country or the region, they're either slightly positive or slightly negative. So again, kind of trading water. Uh, and interest rates that, you know, the 10-year Treasury, as a safe haven bid, you know, rallied yesterday with the yields falling, and now they're kind of back to where they were. Um, you know, the asset class that's moved the most as far as is oil, which you would expect, and the price of oil has gone up about, uh, you know, $3 or roughly 3%. So, you know, ultimately, we think this the impact to equity markets will be, you know, relatively modest from, you know, the current level. There's a lot of risk premium already priced in. Uh, you know, it's hard to disentangle that exactly, but I think you know, you could see at least a few percentage points of the pullback recently we've seen, especially in Europe, to be tied more to this. The the actual economic disruption bar in something truly extreme is very minimal. You know, to give some context for it, the S and P of hundred companies have a combined revenue exposure that is to Russia that is zero point one percent of the total revenue. So Essentially, like, you know, barely a rounding area. So, in terms of the drivers of the marketplace today, it's still very much the Fed, U.S. economic growth and inflation. Uh, the situation in Ukraine, even if it escalates a more, ultimately has a very, you know, modest uh, economic impact, unless there's something to really disruption on the energy flows. And thus far, that seems to be still a pretty low risk. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it's, you know, it certainly creates a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. As we move into you know into March and up to the next Fed meeting, I think that's kind of what that keeps the market on edge is that that sort of uncertainty, that volatility, because we just don't know how quickly this could play out, and how bad things could actually get.
0: Well, Jason, thank you for the update and the context. And to your point, as we're speaking, developments are still unfolding, so we shall see how this further evolves in the days and perhaps weeks to come. I do want to turn to the U.S. economy for a few moments. I know, Jason, in a recent blog you and your colleagues authored, uh, that title, by the way, is This Time is Different, now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though within that blog, Jason, you write about how it is difficult to draw historical Parallels to the current economic environment. So why is that?
1: Well, it's always dangerous, as we say in the blog, to say this time is different because usually you're doing that in a way to sort of justify the markets or the economy doing well, even though maybe other conditions suggest it wouldn't. But it's clear that there are certain aspects about the economy today that there is no kind of historical precedent. Like the things are in certain aspects look very different. And, You know, and the two primary reasons why is that we've, you know, are coming out of hopefully you know, near the end of a pandemic. That we haven't experienced the like in in 100 years. This had huge disruptions on the way we live, on supply chains, on on demand and spending patterns. Then, on top of that, we've had unprecedented policy stimulus, both on fiscal, the amount that's been unleashed in the past few years, and also globally on monetary policy has been just sort of extraordinary. And now we're at the cusp of all this sort of kind of reversing with the pandemic. Hopefully, in retreat to become in a more endemic situation, and the policy now going from expansionary to shifting to more kind of contractionary mode, maybe gradually, but still that that shift is taking place. As a result, when you look at the economy, there are parts of it that look quite late cycle. Instead sort of concerning about you know the future kind of growth dynamic and what that means for the market, other parts of the economy look kind of earlier cycle and certainly far healthier. So there's a really kind of mix of different things depending on how how it's been impacted, how different segments have been impacted. And because of this unusual nature of the policy and the pandemic combined, there really isn't a good historical precedent where you can say this lines up uh, in many ways. There's some things that look similar, but also many aspects that look different any cycle that we want to compare this to.
0: Jason, if we drill a bit deeper into the actual data, can you expand on what the data is telling us? In particular, I'm thinking about the stage of the cycle that the U.S. economy is currently in and further, why historically speaking, the current environment does not exactly map up with the Fed's intent policy direction?
1: Well, if you think about different parts of the economy and kind of what looks extreme one or another, at one end, we have things that definitely look late cycle, which is, you know, the labor market and inflation. Whether you look at the unemployment rate of being 4%, which is, by historical standards over the past 50 years, on the very low end, it's, it's only briefly, and this is pre-pandemic, was unemployment less than that, and that was maybe for, for not even two years. Out of a 50-year time period, unemployment rate was higher than that. There are an estimated 10 million job openings, which is unprecedented. The gap between you know, those who are looking to hire versus those who are looking for jobs. Uh, wage growth is high. So labor market looks late cycle. Inflation you know, is, is high. It's at 7.5%. It's typical that as you move further into cycle, inflation rises because you get strong demand. You get supply and capacity constraints kind of binding. So inflation tends to rise late cycle. though is even higher than any of the past kind of four cycles if you go into the late 90s, late 80s, you know, early 2000s and then in this past cycle. So that again looks kind of later cycle. And if you think about what the Fed is going to do, it's very likely to start hiking rates in March. If you look at the conditions in which its it's first rate hike is in this cycle versus past cycles, it's far later in in this process. Uh, Going back to labor market, unemployment rate is typically at least 5% or higher, and that's been the case for all the past Uh, hiking cycles. Inflation tends to be, you know, much lower, especially in in the recent years, in the 90s and the the 2000s. Um, other measures such as, uh, you know, where the yield curve is measured by the difference between 10 year yield and three year yield. Right now it's around 50 basis points. On average, it's closer to 100. So again, the the Fed is much kind of later in the cycle in terms of when it's hiking and it has much more scope in terms of tightening if you just look at real interest rates being around minus 4%. Typically, they're in positive territory. So just to think of a positive run straight is sort of becomes restrictive. The Fed has a long way to kind of go to get to that level. So that's something that's kind of unique. Um, those are things that are either sort of concerning or worrying, but there's kind of caveats to this. Um, you know, the value of the yield curve, people often look at it as a sign of flattening inversion as a precursor to recession, but it's not guaranteed. And, and even a flattening curve, is not a precursor to imminent recession. In 1994, the Fed undertook a significant rate hiking cycle. By December of 1994, the, the yield curve flattened at seven basis points. But basically it stayed in a range of 25 to 75 basis points for three years, and we didn't get a recession until 2001. So there's a, a six-year period. So even if the curve stays around 50 basis points, that doesn't necessarily tell us how long the cycle can last. On the good side is other data about kind of household and corporate balance sheets, which are in very strong shape, we just start with the households. There's really no precedent of households coming out of a recession in such good financial shape, and partly because unemployment was brief and there was very significant government transfer payments to stimulus checks or enhanced unemployment benefits. As a result, if we look at you know households sort of debt to disposable income, you know it's at a 20-year low. Uh, the, uh, the amount of disposable income that has to be spent to service debt payments, you know on an average basis, is around 9%. It hasn't been this low since the early 1980s, and really have to go back to the 1970s. There's still $2 trillion of excess you know, kind of savings that's been built up in the economy. So collectively, households are in very good shape. If we pivot to the corporate sector, the you know, profits have been very high. Companies you know, in the past years, they've kind of reinforced the balance sheets by issuing debt, but holding a lot of cash. So if you look at debt net of cash... Um, the, those percentages right now are the lowest they've been in, in relative to the past three cycles right when the Fed starts raising rates, meaning corporate balance sheets are in better shape today versus when they've been at the start of other rate hiking cycles for the past 20 or so years. So you, you add this all up, that's a good, healthy, fundamental economy that also exhibits life cycle behavior of high inflation and high labor market. So that's where, when, when you know, depends on where you look at it, there's things that are very worrying. There's also some things that don't suggest, you know, the economy fundamentally is in a pretty healthy state overall.
0: Jason, point well taken as to why this time is different as you broke it down for us. So as you read further into the blog, you go on to provide some takeaways, observations, as it pertains to the current economic environment, consequently the monetary policy path forward, you boil it down to three. So what can you share with us there, Jason?
1: All right. So we can't simply just kind of take sort of the things that are worrying and say, these are light cycle and others are early cycle and say, well, you net out, we're in mid cycle. You know, the colony of me is just too complicated for that. So when we kind of look at this, I guess, the three observations and takeaways we have from the data is. First, that I think you have to be cautious in using any historical kind of patterns and data and cycles for comparison because of the unique nature of this cycle that if you say, oh, this happened in the 1990s or this happened in the 1980s and draw sort of, and try and extrapolate that for what it means for this current cycle, I think this, the quality of information the value of information for making decisions is, is relatively low just because there's so many unique aspects of that. So I think just be cautious in making, making those historical comparisons and also when you see analysis based on that. This leads to the second you know, takeaway, which is that because historical comparisons and templates are kind of less relevant, that means the markets are a little bit more kind of flying blind in terms of how to interpret the data. So they're very sensitive to any new information. Uncertainty is high. When uncertainty is high, it tends to make more vol- uh, markets more volatile because they won't react to any new data because they're trying to kind of calibrate and figure out, okay, where exactly is this cycle going? So the idea of the market's been volatile. I think that's gonna continue throughout certainly the the rest of the winter and into the spring and, and maybe really that that'll be a, a future for this cycle kinda of going forward. And the third thing is that investors have been really focused a lot on the fact that the Fed is behind the curve. They have to be aggressive in hiking. Inflation is high and employment is high. The cycle could end up being relatively short. So we're worried about the sort of the light cycle aspects of it. I think there tends to be less weight put on the fact that the fundamentals of the consumer, you know, the corporates, are, and these are in good shape, which it matters because historically when we get recessions, it requires lots well, sort of initial conditions that make the economy vulnerable to a recession, and it's a catalyst that pushes us into a recession. So the Fed hiking rates and tightening policy could be a catalyst, but if the conditions aren't really in place for a recession, it just makes a recession either less likely or, or shallower. And given the strength of the you know the kind of the economy overall it can handle higher rates it can handle sort of I think what the market is pricing in for this year or next year without really risking a, a significant slowdown and I think that's important so I think that leads into maybe a little bit too much pessimism for investors because they're focused on some of the negatives that they're seeing in the economy and not necessarily focused on the positives
0: Tying this all into the market environment the economic fundamentals you spoke of those coupled with the Fed's policy response which does tilt to the hawkish side how will that translate to investors' sentiment over time.
1: Well, if you look at sentiment measures now, they're quite bearish, uh, and some are you know, things like you know the the AAI, Bulls and Bears Index. You can see other measures of you know, surveys of. Um uh, of investors in general in terms of like how much they're, they're buying downside protection. What we see among the institutional investor community, um, hedge funds have probably become much more cautious. I think sort of longer term investors such as ourselves, I think, are, are a little bit more sanguine on the overall environment. But collectively, I say sentiment is, is turned certainly more cautious on a tactical basis for all the reasons you mentioned. And also, you know, you add on the situation with Ukraine right now. Uh, but ultimately, I think, you know, the, whether it's the Ukraine situation and kind of you know kind of receding into the background as a real sort of drive for the markets. And that could happen, you know, you know, within the next month month or so. But also even on the economic data for the US and globally, I think there's a lot of pessimism right now. I think as we move into the into the winter, into the spring, that pessimism will see recede a little bit because growth data I think will get better. And you know, we've just seen in the past two days data that's come out of Europe on so the manufacturing sentiments across Europe this morning, you know, so sort the of similar data of Germany, surprising to the upside in terms of just how strong it has been, despite the concerns about the Ukraine. I think we'll see similar data being quite strong in the, in the U.S. At the same time, inflation concerns are probably at their peak and, and inflation is probably at its peak. and We'll start to see it kind of come down in the April timeframe. frame. And then with so much focus on the Fed and what they'll do. Uh, it's increasingly likely that the, well, at least the markets are pricing in only a 25 basis point rate hike in March, and then probably a series of hikes from there on. So the next FOMC meeting is on March 16th. You know, if we end up getting that 25 basis point hike, the Fed will sort of lay out essentially its path for the rest of this year, which means at least hikes probably for every meeting until the summer or, or early fall. I think that at least clarity of the direction from the Fed, you know, instead of debating, is it 25, not 25? When will they go? How many times? I think that will put the markets at least at our, you know, some comfort, like we know what the plan is. We know the data should get a little bit better. We'll, we'll reassess. I think at that point in time, sentiment should improve. But we would expect it to improve as we move into the second quarter. Uh, I think with that, I think it, it provides a bit of a tailwind for risk assets or equities to do better at that point in time.
0: Jason, thank you as always for dropping by the podcast and for sharing with us today this interesting perspective. Again, I will point our listeners, our clients, to the blog, which Jason had authored with his colleagues, Brian Rose and Danny Kessler from the Chief Investment Office. Again, the title, This Time is Different, is now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though, of course, for clients of UBS, simply reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the blog directly. Jason, thank you again. I know you'll be joining us a bit later today for the next How Should I Be Positioned, and we'll be catching up later in the week on Friday as well. So looking forward to those conversations, though. Appreciate your time this morning, Jason.
1: You're welcome. Talk to you later on.
0: Sounds good. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.